1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Benjamin T. Smith, author of the book The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade. Ben, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Uh, Well, I'm a a professor of Latin American history. Um, um, I currently work at the University of Warwick uh, in in the UK. uh, However, before, uh, from 2005 to 2013, I was working at Michigan State University. Um, I've always specialised on the history of Mexico, mostly the 19th and 20th centuries history of Mexico. I've read about the press, about indigenous movements, about Catholicism, uh, religion, conservatism, uh, and I've now turned my hand to writing about uh, something you really can't miss about Mexico, which is the narcotics trade.
1: What led you to uh, shift your attention to a topic that has uh, s- such an interesting perspective on the history of Mexico and the history of Mexico's relationship with the United States? Uh,
0: well, in some ways, what I'm doing here is building on stuff that I've already uh, worked on. So particularly the kind of uh, local politics, local uh, peasant networks, local commercial networks. Um, so I've studied these kind of things before. Uh, but not really related to narcotics, mostly related to things like coffee uh, or other kind of agricultural uh, products. Um, So in some ways, it was within my wheelhouse. Why did I turn to it? Frankly, because it was impossible to ignore. Uh, And I was in Mexico about six months of every year uh, while I was at Michigan State University, uh, either doing research or hanging out with family or seeing friends. Um, And this was the period uh, when Felipe Calderón came to power in Mexico and launched a particularly aggressive war on drugs. Um, and this had catastrophic effects across the country. Uh, and as a result, I, I thought it was it was important uh, to not, in order to understand what was going on in the present, uh, to understand the past. Uh, and when I returned to the UK, I was very uh, lucky to, to get a grant from the British government uh, in order to do this.
1: It really is a fascinating book because it, I mean I was impressed with with how many different levels at which you're addressing this. You're talking about you, you know this topic that there has been quite a bit written on but you're talking about it from uh, different angles you're talking simultaneously you're talking about uh the history of u.s mexico relations you're talking about uh america's own engagement with uh narcotics and and efforts to uh address it and you're also talking about the effects of this trade upon uh the the people of mexico the local economy and i i thought for me what was most fascinating was the how you, the Mex- various governments within Mexico at the, at the local, state, and, and even federal level have oftentimes not so much combated the trade as harnessed it for their own ends. And that was a, a dynamic that, that is, is something that you don't often see discussed too much in terms of the popular understanding of, of Mexico and the drug trade.
0: No, you're, you're completely true. I mean, uh, so effectively what happens and what has happened for the last hundred years is local, mostly local mayors and state governors Um, have effectively run what I term protection rackets. So they approach a trafficker and they say, we can put you in prison or you can pay me a certain percentage of your profits uh, and I will protect you from prosecution either by the Americans or by the federal government uh, of Mexico. Now, this is often termed corruption. And in many cases, it is. And the state governors and many mayors have got very rich out of this practice. But I think what I found Somewhat surprising was uh, many of these governors and mayors actually tried to funnel some of this money towards building up the state. Now, in the 30s and 40s, this was building schools, uh, it was building roads, uh, it was making sure they had enough kind of um, uh, teachers to fill to fill these schools. But by the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, it was about building the police force itself. Um, so these protection rackets were actually... To say it's easy to just dismiss them as uh, the as private corruption, but in actual fact, they had a fairly major state building uh, purpose to them, which I hope I, I bring out in the book.
1: It, it's a, it's a dynamic that I, it's, a, it's an aspect of it that I find especially relevant, given you know I, having you know an American myself growing up in the United States, how we've gone from the you know, war on drugs, how you know just say no and, and zero tolerance to the point where in the United States now, you're, you're seeing the acceptance, at least, of marijuana, and now it's being promoted as, well, this is something we can tax, and, 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 and the the state can benefit from this. It, it seems as though that you're starting to see this uh, perspective beginning to take hold, at least with regards to, to marijuana, that, that the, as you demonstrate, uh, that many uh, officials in Mexico have had virtually since the beginning.
0: Well, I, th- I think they have, and I think it's, it's impossible to get uh, – it's. Important to understand that the reason they were doing this uh, was effectively there was virtually zero drug taking uh, in Mexico. Um, There was a minor kind of bubble of of marijuana taking in the kind of nineteen tens nineteen twenties around the era of the revolution, where lots of soldiers would use it as a kind of uh, as a salve, as a balm. But beyond that, Mexico until the last fifteen years or so has never had a drug problem. So they effectively were taxing something, uh, a a, a commercial product, that wasn't harming Mexico. Um, uh, And that's certainly the way that they they saw it. In fact, and though this is very difficult to actually prove, one, sotto Voce, off the record, people will tell you that one of the parts of this agreement was that the traffickers did not sell uh, in Mexico itself. So during the 1970s, for example, Mexico was the United States' major heroin producer. It provided somewhere in the region 95% of America's heroin, rather like it does today. And yet they tried to do a, um, uh, a survey of drug taking in Mexico, and they literally, I think they, they surveyed about 16,000 people, and they couldn't find a heroin addict. Uh, so it appears 0% on the, uh, on, on the study. Um, so this is, you know, partially why they did this. I thought that was something that was very interesting
1: when you're in talking to early chapters about Mexico in uh, the early 20th century uh, it was uh, a you know a very different Mexico than uh, it is today we're talking about uh, it, uh, a country that's uh, you know goes from military dictatorship to convulsed by revolution and and how you know Mexico the, the the gulf between Mexico and the United States is is, is uh, enormous during this time and how it really underscores the degree to which this trade they describe emerging really is a trade in the United States and, a, and not a trade designed to feed indigenous Mexicans. What, what was it that, that that sparked it in the early 20th century? And, and how does that the fact that they're targeting the, their, their, the, this market to the north shape the development of the drug trade?
0: Uh, that's a yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, essentially uh, it. I mean, essentially it appears as soon as uh, America make narcotics illegal with the 1914 um, Harrison Act. Uh, So after that, um, uh, many traffickers start um, bringing in uh, particularly uh, morphine, uh, heroin to a certain extent, and a very small extent, cocaine. Um, They normally take it in. The vast majority of these um, narcotics are still made in Um, drug factories uh, in Europe. So they import them uh, along the east coast of Mexico, and then transport them normally by train um, up to the border, um, either to the crossing at Mexicali or Tijuana or Ciudad Juarez. Uh, And and from these places, they then go on to the rest of the United States. Um, So I think initially, it's also fairly important to kind of uh, about the um, Mexico, really up to the 1960s, only really um produced somewhere in the region of 20 30 40 percent of the um the hard narcotics that the us used there was another there was a brief burst of activity in the late 1940s as well but really it was um probably only the kind of second biggest producer of narcotics for the U.S. market. The vast majority of this was still made in Europe and came into uh, the east coast of the United States. Um, so I think that's important to kind of um, uh, to point out as well. Things completely change in the 1960s. Who's involved in the drug trade in Mexico
1: in the uh, first half of the 20th century? Are we talking about, uh, are, are, are this, does this involve professionals? Does this involve Local farmers who are hooking up with Americans, or is this something where you're seeing uh, indigenous networks developing that are uh, that are getting in, involved?
0: So initially, so during the period, say 1910 to into the 1930s, the vast majority of people who do this are either um, basically small scale businessmen or um, or small scale smugglers um, who are smuggling alcohol uh, across to the United States anyway, and they decide to smuggle drugs as well. Um, Many of the people who import these actual narcotics are pharmacists, because they have the contacts in Europe, they know who to tap up for bits of morphine and bits of heroin. Um, So it's a fairly kind of professional network, uh, initially. However, during the 1940s, because of the Second World War, Mexico and the United States get cut off from the main suppliers of heroin and morphine in the world. So as a result, Mexico starts to produce homemade, homegrown morphine and heroin. And what that involves is hundreds of villages in the Western mountains of Mexico starting to grow poppies uh, and being taught uh, by people how to extract the gum from these poppies. And then uh, over from about 1943, 1944 onwards, Getting the chemical knowledge to make morphine and heroin uh, out of um, these raw materials. So it's really the kind of mid 1940s and World War II that allows Mexico to become a, uh, to create its own kind of, as you rightly say, kind of indigenous networks of, um, uh, of, of drug producers, drug smugglers, um, and uh, drug sellers. And I think what's kind of remarkable is that still today, I mean, we hear these kind of many stories of large, I don't really like the term, but kingpins like Chapo Guzman or, or Caro Quintero or Ernesto Fonseca. And they come from exactly the same villages and they are the grandsons and great grandsons of people who were doing this in the 1940s. And when you read the documents um, from the 1940s, it's kind of extraordinary. Exactly the same surnames uh, pop up. Uh, so uh, this has a, a, a fairly long heritage. Uh, it, what's interesting. Uh, another
1: interesting aspect about it is and people nowadays, when they think of the Mexican drug trade and, and like you know Calderon's uh, war on drugs and uh, the you know the images of, of, of you know shootouts and brutalities and assassinations, is is how that wasn't there for so much of of, of the uh, history of the drug trade. It, it, it's it, it's I, I hate to use this word because it seems like it's trivializing, but it's almost quaint reading your early chapters where you're describing this uh much more uh localized uh much more uh peaceful is definitely not the right word for it but a, a, a much uh you know less uh aggressive uh you know uh, drug trade in terms of uh demarcating territory uh handling shipments and so forth there, you certainly describe plenty of violence but it's on nowhere near the scale that people might associate it with associate with it today
0: Yeah, well, I think that that was the kind of point that I really wanted to bring out um, is that the the drug trade doesn't have to be violent per se, right? So there was a time I think during the late 1990s, early 2000s, when British Columbia in Canada uh, was producing the vast majority of the West Coast of the United States marijuana, and yet homicide rates never went up there, right? So there is no uh, intrinsic reason why this commercial activity has to be violent. It is simply the act of growing something, processing that thing. Uh, and then transporting that thing from one point to another, there is no violence inherent in that. Where the violence does come in, uh, and this was my argument throughout the book, is a uh, the protection racket. Because in order to make a drug trafficker pay, you've got to threaten him. Or you've got to. This is. It's not simply a a pleasant uh, um, kind of. Uh, it is extortion. You're effectively extorting this drug trafficker. So that obviously is a relatively violent act. The other way, the other thing that brings violence is basically the ferocity of the war on drugs. And up up to the 1960s in general, there wasn't a terribly aggressive war on drugs. And if you got caught, even with mountains of Coke or heroin, you were unlikely to go to jail for more than a year or so. So there was very little uh, incentive to kind of fight back. It would, um... Influences a lot of this, as you make
1: clear in your book, is the relationship with the United States. How does the United States, uh, up to the early 1960s, uh, influence Mexico's response to it? Because it really is a very conflict response because those protection rackets you described, we're not talking about, uh, Criminals who are entirely the private sector. We're oftentimes talking about, as you've already mentioned, uh, uh, local officials, state officials, sometimes even uh, federal police who are uh, providing this. So you have, on the one hand, this sort of involvement, but you also have, on the other hand, that it is uh, ultimately the government that, when we do see arrests and crackdowns, it, it's being done by the government. So it's almost a, a schizophrenic response that, that that you know plays to the
0: divided mind of, of,
1: of Mexican officials.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is this is something that I did find fascinating. So, um, uh, is that. Officials on one hand are building institutions using the money from drug trafficking, but at the same time, they are occasionally doing the bidding of the United States and cracking down on that very same uh, drug trade. And this is, in a way, this is how the protection racket works, because the, um, uh, the Mexican authorities continually have this stick uh, to hold over the traffickers. They continually say, if you don't keep paying us, we'll give you up to the Americans or we'll do what they actually want us to do. Um, so this allows them to charge fairly large amounts of money uh, from these traffickers. Uh, in terms of what the the US's relationship to this early drug trade, well, the kind of uh, the czar, uh, the drug czar in the United States, was a man called Harry Anslinger, who read who ran the Bureau of Narcotics. Um, and I think what I found is he he, he appears in 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 particularly in, um, uh, in 1940, he stops Mexico effectively decriminalizing drugs. Now, Mexico does at that point have a, fairly group, of, a group of very radical doctors uh, in the kind of highest echelons of the government. Uh, and they believe that it is uh, better for Mexico uh, to uh, not to produce illegal narcotics, but rather for the government to buy narcotics and sell these at a very low price to addicts. As a result, their idea is they're going to put the actual drug traffickers and the drug vendors out of business. And Harry Anslinger takes a very, very dim view of this and basically bullies Mexico um, and cajoles it and threatens it and basically extorts Mexico to stop uh, this particular project. However, after that, I think Anslinger Anslinger is concerned effectively with his position in the United States. Um, And once he's shown that he can bully uh, a country like Mexico, he effectively allows it to run its own drug policy, um, certainly from the kind of late 1940s onwards. Um, And it's a relatively kind of hands off operation. All these things obviously change really with the election of Nixon uh, and much more pressure is put on Mexico to clear up its drug trafficking networks and uh, its drug production. Um, but up to the 1970s, it's a relatively kind of hands off approach that the U.S. uses. Now,
1: we're getting to this period uh, that you've already uh, alluded to a couple of times where things really start to change. And that's the 1960s. And and Nixon is in many ways uh, a reaction to it rather than a, uh, uh, a, a, sor- a source of it. I was wondering if you could explain what's happening in the 1960s to bring about uh, change in the Mexican drug trade and what? Uh, And 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 what are the changes that uh, these forces are bringing
0: about? Yes, certainly. So, so the most obvious change is, frankly, the counterculture. So, uh, up to the nineteen sixties, very very few white middle class Americans uh, took narcotics, at least since the late uh, nineteenth century. Um, However, during the nineteen sixties, there's an enormous uh, uh, kind of youth explosion, and many of these people start to smoke marijuana. I mean, extraordinary numbers that I think. they even shock me, things like 40% of high schoolers during this period uh, have tried marijuana, whereas in Mexico, I think it's about 1% of high schoolers have tried marijuana. Um, So this creates an enormous market. And many of these uh, hippies, uh, for use of a better word, um, they go down to Mexico and start to buy up marijuana in bulk. And this basically like adding kind of jet fuel uh, to the Mexican uh, drug industry. And it goes from a fairly small, industry that is located really in the mountains of Western Mexico to one that covers uh, the vast majority of rural Mexico. Um, so it, it really grows in size. It expands enormously uh, during that period. Now, then in 1972, the United States and France and Turkey cracked down on something that has become known as the French Connection, which was basically the traditional network um, of heroin producers in Europe, uh, which produced heroin for the US market, something around 70 to 80% of America's heroin came from this particular connection. When this breaks down, America, uh, Mexico almost immediately fills the breach. Um, Mexico starts to produce the vast amount of, um, uh, the vast majority of Mexican, uh, heroin during this era. So up to about, I think about 1976, it's 95% of the US's heroin comes from Mexico. So those two changes, one, the market for marijuana followed by bang the market for heroin completely changed the scale, um, of the Mexican drug trade. And how does this,
1: uh, lead to the, uh, Increase in uh, violence is it a matter of market competition or is there is it a consequence of
0: the war on drugs effectively uh, escalating the stakes for the dealers? That's a really good question. So I think initially, like many people who were studying uh, the drug trade, I assumed it was market competition. Right, I assumed that effectively there was, say, one uh, drug trafficker in a town, another drug trafficker came along, and they competed over who would smuggle narcotics through a particular smuggling route. But in actual fact, what I found is the vast majority of traffickers cooperated. Why? Because the market in, Me- in America is so vast, there is no need to compete. Um, so you basically cooperate uh, in order to make the huge amounts of money that you can on the US market. So I found very little actual market competition between drug traffickers. Um, I think this is a a real mistake in a lot of the literature is to assume that these groups um, are highly aggressive capitalists that cannot couch any kind of competition. Most of the time they're cooperating. However, what happens in the 1970s is the war on drugs is launched with a kind of a degree of ferocity that was that was pretty shocking to me um, so what happens is is the american agents first from something called the bndd bureau of uh, narcotic and dangerous drugs and then from the, the now the dea turn up in mexico they ally with a group of mexican policemen uh, mostly from something called the federal police force the the pjf um, and they start really kind of hammering, uh, uh, drug traffickers. So they will arrest people. They will torture them brutally for information. Um, they will then often turn them into informants. And what I found is, is that, um, by doing so they broke down these networks of cooperation because when one trafficker was in a town and another trafficker turns up immediately assumed that this guy might be an informant for the PJF. So this causes a lot of the, the kind of intra-trafficker violence. So you've got kind of two types of violence happening. One, you have the state and its DEA, American agent allies, torturing and killing drug traffickers. Uh, and two, you have these drug traffickers becoming increasingly paranoid about the use of informants and the fact that if they are given up, they're not going to get one year in jail anymore. They're probably going to be tortured. They might the police might well pick up their family and torture them. Um, and and after all that, they might well get 20 to 30 years in jail. So the stakes rise massively. And I think this also kind of causes the violence.
1: And yet, sorry. And and yet at the same time, you're uh, this is doing absolutely nothing to uh Diminish the drug trade because, as you've explained, the market in the United States is so great that you remove any one
0: individual, and that vacuum is going to be filled almost instantaneously. Right. I mean, you're, you're actually uh, correct, I suppose. And um, what the DEA certainly argued uh, was this incredibly violent crackdown, uh, particularly in rural areas during the nineteen from 1976 through to about 1979, which had the name. The, the Mexicans called it Operation Condor. Uh, the Americas called it off-camera the atrocities. Um, it was effectively the army and the PGF marching into rural Mexico and kidnapping, arresting, torturing brutally, often killing um, peasant drug producers. Now, I suppose what this does have uh, is a it it shifts slightly. The focus of the Mexican drug trade. No doubt, um, by the late 70s, they still are producing marijuana uh, and also producing opium in order to make into heroin. However, um, they also move much more heavily uh, at this point into cocaine. Um, And this is when links are made with Colombian and Peruvian uh, cocaine producers. uh, And Mexico starts becoming this key transshipment point uh, for cocaine from South America. Uh, so uh, so you're right. The, the, I mean, the U.S. market at that time for cocaine is growing massively, late 70s, uh, early 80s. Um, and as a result, uh, Mexico yet again steps into the breach and becomes America's kind of emergency uh, drug shipper. And as you describe, this starts to have very detrimental effects
1: on the Mexican state itself that you have a state that is never has not you know necessarily been healthy during this period but they nonetheless have in, in, enjoyed a, a, a degree of authority that has been uh, acknowledged and, and has been effective but the, the sheer amount of money that you uh, 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 note that you uh, identify going into this trade now because of the cocaine being added to uh, heroin, uh, heroin and, and marijuana now they're starting to, it's Creating a destabilization effect that is uh, that, that that's if
0: that's uh, really undermining the ability of Mexican state to do uh, its non uh, drug enforcement functions. Right, absolutely. So up to really the late nineteen eighties, uh, the state had control of these protection rackets. I.e., it approached the traffickers um, and it bullied, conj- cajoled, tortured, and threatened them and got money out of them. It was in control. However really two things happen in the late 80s, early 90s, which change all this. And one, as you point out, is just the level of money. Um, So particularly after the Americans go after um, Colombian kingpins like the Carly cartel, like Pablo Escobar, the Colombians start to, they rewrite rewrite their deal with the Mexicans. Previously, the Mexicans had just earned a fee for taking cocaine over the border, about $1,000 per kilo. Right, a kilo is worth at that point about twenty thousand dollars. However, uh, during uh, the early nineties, they rewrite this contract and they effectively say, if you take over one kilo of cocaine, we will give you another kilo of cocaine. So now, for for moving two kilos of cocaine, you're not getting two thousand dollars; you're getting twenty thousand dollars. So it basically sticks a zero on the earnings of the Mexican cartels and makes and makes them in some cases and in some places, more powerful than the state. And they start to take over the protection rackets. Now, the other reason that they can do this is that the Mexican state at the time is going through a process uh, of democratization. Um, so the, the one party, the pre, the, the single party that had run elections and run the state uh, from 1929 to 2000 starts to lose elections to other parties. So it no longer has control over these protection rackets, and in their place come these, for use of a better term, cartels, which start to take them over and are much less easy to control.
1: So, how does this uh, basically set the stage for the Mexican drug trade that we see in the media today, and to what degree does the media today and 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 the you know, government pronouncements really fail to capture what's
0: going on in the modern day drug trade? Well, I think what they fail to capture is we we, we assume uh, that there is still this kind of moral binary. On the one hand, you have uh, good cops, and on the other hand, you have evil traffickers. Uh, and the violence is either traffickers killing other traffickers, or it's the state Uh, attempting to kind of crack down on these traffickers. But in actual fact, what's going on is a bit more complicated than that. Everyone is struggling at the moment in Mexico to gain monopolistic control, not over the trade, but over protection of the trade, i.e. they're trying to gain control of a certain amount of territory and shake down or extort all the people who produce or traffic drugs in this area. Right. And that is what the struggle is over. However, another thing that's that's added to this is the struggle isn't simply over uh, protection of the drug trade anymore. It's over protection of a whole gamut of illegal activities, car theft, robbery, um, uh, kidnapping, extortion. Um, So these kind of cartels and their allies within the state are all struggling to gain a monopoly over these particular protection rackets in different re- regions. And that's what you see on, on the news. It's not a fight of one drug cartel against another, uh, or a drug cartel against the state. It's a fight of an alliance of cartels uh, and the, and bits of the state against other cartels and bits of the state. And that's what's going on. And I apologise for being a little a little kind of complicated and dogmatic <laughs> in, that, in that particular section. Well, it is a very um, it is a very complicated dynamic you described. Uh yeah, I mean it, it uh it is. Um I mean there are, there are other things I think big big kind of structural changes uh which have also affected it. I mean one is the um uh the legalization as you mentioned decriminalization of marijuana which means that a lot of mexican Traffickers have gotten out of the marijuana business. What have they gone to? Well, they've gone into the uh, initially they went into the amphetamine business in the early 2000s. Then they went back to heroin uh, during the kind of late 2000s. Um, and by now they have moved into this uh, horrific kind of fentanyl market, which is a product which is about 50 times uh, stronger than morphine and is killing what, somewhere around 100,000 um, uh, US addicts uh, per year, which is an extraordinary and very Uh, Distressing uh, number. Another major dynamic, which I don't think we take uh, or certainly um, a lot of Americans perhaps fail to acknowledge, is that um, the US gun market has effectively flooded Mexico with high caliber uh, automatic guns. Uh, So, since basically the law was changed in 2004, uh, and it became much easier to buy automatic weapons in the United States, hundreds of smugglers uh, have started smuggling these guns into Mexico. And it's fascinating. I was talking to a, um, another researcher in Mexico who was explaining that he was doing interviews with certain um, uh, basically cartel hitmen. And they were saying in the early 2000s, no one had a gun. The boss had a gun. Uh, maybe you got a kind of knackered Central American M16 uh, if you were lucky. Uh, But you did most of your kind of punishment beatings with a stick, right? Um, However, everything changed. They said 2004, 2005, suddenly everyone got a gun. Um, And Mexico has gone from a place where I think about 20 to 30 percent of murders were committed by a gun to a place in which 70 to 80 percent of murders are committed by a firearm. Uh, So I think just the ease of the ease of killing people with firearms has made killing uh, uh, or has made the, the kind of uh, the homicide rate rise very rapidly. Now, what we've been talking about has been the
1: the history of the drug trade, as you describe it in your book. And and yet, I feel that to describe it as we have uh, it gives a, certain, a misleading impression. Alone, gives a misleading impression. of it, Because one of the things you you never lose sight of in your book is the human element. You you, you open your uh, book with. Uh, the account of, of a particular individual in uh, present-day Mexico, and then you uh, occasionally uh, bring into uh, the story uh, key people in the trade, uh, key uh, Mexican uh, police officials, uh, to to, uh, uh, to to humanize and, and also to. Uh, you know, provide some granular detail as to what's going on. I was wondering if there is, is one or two individuals that, in, in particular, that you talk about in your book, that you feel are, are you know, that you want to you know, highlight to give you examples of these broader trends uh, that you've described
0: uh, over the course of your book. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, in, in terms of the writing and the way that it's formatted, you rightly say this is not an orthodox, in some ways it's not an orthodox history book or an orthodox, certainly academic history book. I've designed it I mean, before I, I wrote it, I read a lot of Chandler, uh, Dashiell Hammett, um, James Elroy. I mean, I've tried to to write it almost like, if I could, like a kind of noir novel, uh, and that's very much what I've been was kind of inspired by. So I, I, I not only introduced characters, I tended to to also kind of write action set pieces. I've attempted to um, kind of keep sentences short to remove a lot of the kind of academic verbiage. Uh, and keep a kind of staccato rhythm to the entire piece. Um, so that that was that was quite deliberate on my part, and basically because I feel that this is too important a subject to leave to simply academics. And my hope is that over the um, you know the next few years, uh, a fair amount of the kind of general public uh, will also read this book and kind of reconsider um, their relationship to Mexico, their relationship to narcotics, uh, etc. I suppose in terms of the kind of characters. Um, that's a very good question. Uh, one of them that really struck me, and it was a bit of a kind of archival find which led me on down this path, was a guy called Raul Mendiolaya. Now, Raul Mendiolaya was head of the judicial police uh, in the 1970s, and he really orchestrates this um, uh, takeover um, of local protection rackets. He basically runs the drug trade, despite being head of the federal police. But I thought what was fascinating is I find him running around uh, his hometown of Ciudad Juarez in the 1930s, still as a policeman, but working basically as a hitman, taking out rival drug dealers. Um, So I thought it was kind of fascinating uh, that his career, 40 years in the making, had always been kind of been officially in the police, but it had always been kind of connected to narcotics uh, as well. Uh, in terms of another character that I really enjoyed researching and writing about it is this this character that a few other people have, have mentioned. Uh, her name is Ignacia Hassel Lanacha, um, who was basically in charge of the Ciudad Juarez drug industry um, from the late 20s uh, through to the 1960s. Um, she's a for, I mean, for a start, we assume the vast majority of drug traffickers and drug peddlers are men. Uh, But I think this assumption is kind of baked into a lot of the mythology. Why are drug traffickers men? Because drug traffickers are violent. Who are more violent? Men. Um, But in actual fact, certainly up to the 1930s, a lot of the drug peddlers and drug chemists and drug smugglers were actually women, uh, because all it was was an extension of orthodox commerce. Um, So it was fascinating learning about this woman, Lanacha, her kind of remarkable commercial mind, Um, And we managed to get hold of somewhere in the region of uh, 20 or 30 drug cases um, in the archives of Ciudad Juarez, which explained in granular detail how she ran her operation. Uh, She was very smart. She 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 rarely kind of touched the drugs herself. But in certain low points, she would even sell it out of the back of her house because she was protected at that point by the police. Uh, but in the meat and in, in the main, she used a network of women, a lot of them prostitutes, in order to sell it to people going around the red light district uh, of Ciudad Juarez. Um, so yeah, she was a, a formidable uh, figure. Another thing that fascinated me about her is that whenever she got caught, uh, she she would claim to have some kind of religious awakening, uh, which played <laughs> really well. It played really well on the U.S. side of the border. Right, she can be saved. So. These like pastors would turn up in Ciudad Juarez and try and meet her, um, and and try and save her soul. Um, so uh, it was a kind of really clever bit of, of, of PR. I mean, I'm, I'm not I, I, saying it was entirely, but it was very convenient. She only she only converted when she was stuck in jail. Uh, there's some, there's something about
1: it that uh, when I was reading it, that, that struck me as as how it was so it's it, like so much of the drug trade it was so specifically targeted to, to americans so the the the, pro, the the evangelical notion of 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 you know conversion and rebirth and being able to walk away yes. from one sin through it and, and that, that, stri- that, that that strikes me as something that,
0: that is so uh appealing to so many americans
1: <laughs>
0: yeah no i think that you're you're absolutely right so even yeah, even cynical ways to escape jail <laughs> in the, uh, were were um, were focused on the Americans rather on on the uh, uh, on the Mexicans. So no, you're you're absolutely right. That was that was kind of um, yeah, fascinating. Uh,
1: we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Right, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, as you might guess from the early bits of this um, uh, of this podcast, I've I've been working quite a lot actually on writing up. Uh, fairly dry political theory on uh, working out how the drug trade and the international, the transnational drug trade affects state formation, not only in Mexico, but in a full loads of other countries, Afghanistan, Colombia. So trying to do something more comparative. In terms of uh, my route back to popular history, I have two ideas. The first one is to write uh, the history of Trotsky's death. Uh, He was shot in Mexico. Uh, sorry. He was had an eye, well, He was shot at, and then he got an ice pick in his head in Mexico. Uh, and Mexico's foremost detective, an extraordinary man called Guido's Cuaron, uh, the uncle apparently of the director Alfonso Cuaron. Um, he basically investigated the murder and used some of the first fingerprint technology to actually track down who did it. So I was wondering if to to kind of uh, write a kind of um, murder mystery about him. Uh, the other person i was thinking of doing a maybe a kind of biography of is another fairly extraordinary person called oscar zeta um i don't know if you you've heard of him who's a major civil, chicano civil rights lawyer during the 1960s until um um until his death in 1974 it appears uh at the hands of drug dealers down in mazatlan in uh sinaloa the other interesting thing about zeta Acosta is he is the model he is the uh, yeah, the model from Hunter S. Thompson's £300 Samoan lawyer. Uh, that is actually Oscar zetter a Chicano rights lawyer. So I thought it might be kind of interesting to look at this, this extraordinary period where civil rights meets narcotics uh, meets uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Um, um, yeah, so I thought that might be a kind of interesting um, uh, period to look at through the eyes of this extraordinary civil rights uh, lawyer. Those sound like fascinating books, and I hope that uh, when
1: you're done with them, we can have you back on the podcast to discuss them. No, certainly. Thank you very much. Absolutely, Mark. i will be delighted. Well, Ben Smith, thank you for, for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.